Welcome everybody out there at home to Newcastle Writers Festival, held online for the very first time. My many congratulations to Festival Director Rosemary Nilsson and her team for pulling this all together. My name's Suzanne Leal. I'm a writer and my new novel, The Deception, is published by Alan and Arwen today, as it happens. And I'm delighted to be your host for the session, Secrets and Lies, with my guests, Susan Francis and Stephanie Wood. I'm on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. Before I introduce Susan and Stephanie to you, can I urge you to take a look around the festival website? There you'll find a link to McLean's Festival's bookseller, and a link to enable you to donate to the festival to help it going in the future. And now to my, to my guests. Susan Francis is the author of the memoir, The Love That Remains. A former English teacher, she is currently writing her second book, a novel inspired by the political executions of the Balibo Five. Welcome to you, Susan. Hello, how are you, Suzanne? Well, well, very well, Susan. What I was wanting to do is just um, show the audience quickly your book, this beautiful book, The Love That Remains. And yeah, then, it's a beautiful cover. It is, it's been very beautifully designed, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Turning to Stephanie Wood now, before I start my conversation with each of you, Stephanie Wood is an award-winning features writer and former staff writer at Good Weekend Market, uh, Magazine. She's also the author of the book Fake, a startling true story of love in a world of liars, cheats, narcissists, fantasists and phonies. And that's published by Alan and Unwin. And here's Stephanie's book. Welcome to you, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. What strange times we are living in, with most of the population self-isolating due to the coronavirus. Stephanie, how have you been managing it over the last couple of weeks? Um, I'm blessed. I'm ex I'm extremely fortunate. I have I fled when they they said the borders were closing. I decided I had to leave Sydney and be with my mother, who's a, who's a widow, elderly widow, and lives in Queensland. So I'm actually at the beach, um, not here to really enjoy it, but it's I've got a decent outlook to the the sea, and I'm with my mum. Um, which brings its own special set of challenges from time to time. <laughs> but um, I know that so many people are doing it so much harder, so I'm really very lucky. That said, work is drying up without question um, and, you know, I've got the anxieties that probably every freelance writer in the country's got um, about, you know, what the future holds. Yes, it's very worrying times. Wow. Everyone's coming to terms with this. Have you been able to do any other writing, not freelance paid work, but is, is there a, work, a piece that you're working on at the moment that enables you to um, disappear or seek refuge? It's a challenge because I am trying to, I've still got a little bit of work, some paid work, which I really need, obviously, for financial reasons to be doing. And it's been quite hard to fit other writing in. Um, I'm working on a book, a new book proposal, but. I think I'm feeling extremely um, challenged by that because I don't know what the world's going to look like when we come out of this. And I, I, I feel as though people are going to want to read different things and I'm not sure what that is yet. And so that's where my brain is at the moment. Like what is my idea going to transfer to post-coronavirus times and 
I'm honestly not sure. So creatively, it's really quite, I've got a million ideas, but I just don't know whether they're right anymore. Now, I'll just turn to Susan in a moment, but before we do, Stephanie, you said you're not sure what people are going to write, they're going to want to read. Now, as a freelancer, of course, that makes a lot of difference because you need to pay for your work. As a creative writer, does it matter what people want or does it only matter what you want to write? That's a really, really good point. Uh, I guess I don't want to write something that's irrelevant. I want something that's that's meaningful. Um, I yeah. don't want yeah. to, and I'm, I, I fear that the world, there's no shortage of reading matter out there and I don't want to be contributing something that's not valuable. Mm-hmm. So in okay. that sense... That's why I'm I'm struggling. I, I, it, it it needs to matter. I think what I what I for my own sanity. I think yes. I think what you've always written for me has always mattered. But we're more more to that later. Susan, can I come to you? How have you been coping over the last few weeks of this brave new world? Um, I feel a little bit like Stephanie in so far that um, I'm lucky to have a roof over my head and the work, I'm a tutor, I'm an English tutor, so I can actually Skype of an evening and I've also got some part-time editing, so that's keeping me going. Um, one of the most, the strangest thing is that because so much promotional work has, has dried up for my book, um, people are wanting content over over the internet or online and yesterday yesterday I made a video my first video <laughs> and I put it mm. all together and it took me hours but um it was all right in the end so I guess I'm learning a lot of new skills and uh the book that I was that I'm working on my new book is 52 53,000 words in um so I'm not going to turn around and and start writing something else. So I'm squeezing a little bit of that in as well. So it, I'm actually finding my days really busy. Yeah, I must say I have to agree. Um, I've um, been drawn kicking and screaming into the online community, which I found to be particularly supportive given that I've got this book out this week. So everything's had to change. As for each of you, I think, from seeing people face-to-face, from appearing at festivals where you meet people, to making videos, grappling with Zoom, thank God for Zoom, (laughs) and um, dealing with the audio, dealing with the video, dealing with what part of your house is going to be clean enough to show to the public. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. um, It's funny funny how the house house actually gets... I'm finding the house getting dirtier, not cleaner, and I don't understand how that works. I'm here and I should be kind of, but I'm not. I just feel I'm actually chock-a-block with things to do. Excellent, excellent. That's good yeah. to hear. Let's turn to secrets and lies. That's what our session's called today, and both your books are replete with both secrets and lies. And both secrets and lies involve in part many you loved. Let's find out a little bit more. Susan, I'm going to start with you. Can I take you back to early 2012 when you met a man called Wayne? How did you meet him, Susan? I met him online, funnily enough. (laughs) I was teaching out in the Central West and I'd been there for about uh, 12 years 
And I was working very hard. The school that I worked in was low socioeconomic. Um, so there was a lot more than just teaching to do. And uh, I'd finished with a previous relationship and I needed to add something, uh, a distraction, I guess. And I met Wayne online and he was looking for the same thing. Never, never met him thinking that it was going to go where it went. Um, so, yeah, I was just looking for a distraction and kind of a different, a different focus in my life other than just work. When you finally met him face to face, what stood out for you about him? Um, I think the first thing that stood out was his height. He was incredibly tall. So physically mm -hmm. I was very attracted to him. Um, and the second thing that stood out was his confidence and I felt he was a straight shooter and what he said I could trust and what he said I could believe. Um, and he was just never afraid of anything. He seemed to know his place in the world and that gave me a sense of my place in the world. And do you remember the moment where you actually fell in love with him? Was there a moment or was it just a, a gradual growth? Wow, that's a good question. I don't think anyone's asked me that question before. I think the moment I fell in love with him was when he sat on the couch and said to me, will you come to Spain with me for 12 months? Um, because that was just uh, such a parallel heart thing for me, you know, to, to go to Spain and to leave our work behind and to start a new adventure. Nothing could be better than that. So that's probably when I fell in love with him right then. Stephanie, um, can I go to Spain with you for 12 months is a bit better than saying, <laughs> can you do my washing for me? Is it not? And I understand there was a time, um, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I'm going to take you back to 2010. At the time you were single and you found yourself on a date with a man you'll call, or you'll call, Joe Wood. How did that come about, that date? Um, mine was an online date as well. Um, I was looking for possibly distraction. Um, I'd been single for a while. I hadn't been online dating. I'd found previously that um, it was very dissatisfying and demoralising and so I hadn't been online dating but I decided I was going to jump in that swamp again and um, I met this guy called Joe or I call Joe. Now, it seemed to me that at first you're completely indifferent to him. What, um... I was. A, a bit unlike um, Susan's experience. I was pretty indifferent to him. Um, I was underwhelmed on our first date. Um, I thought he was... I, I, it's very hard in retrospect. You know, I thought something was a little odd, but it, it was impossible to say what it was. And I, I, we said goodnight and I didn't think I'd see him again. But... Um, Flattery is very powerful and so when he contacted me again and suggested we go out again, I, th I thought, why not? I'll go again. And um, women are so often told, don't be so fussy. You're too fussy. You'll never meet anyone if you're so fussy. Um, and so I went out with him again and we had probably a little bit more to drink. I think alcohol and flattery together are a wicked combination mm. and um, can take you down, mislead you terribly. Um, so the second date was a little bit more entertaining. Um, 
there were a few misunderstandings. At that stage, we hadn't summoned up the courage to talk to each other via telephone, so we were doing the old text messaging and emailing. Mm. And in a couple of things that he said in emails, I was really a bit put off by, and I told him so. And then he did these remarkable backflips to to go, no, no, that's not what I meant. I mean, for example, um, I'm a former restaurant critic. Um, I edited the Age Good Food Guide, and I do. I was at the time then I living in Sydney. I was doing a little bit of restaurant reviewing. And um, we were talking about booking a restaurant. And I said, do you want me to book or do you want to book? And he said, oh, you book. It'll be very interesting to, to see whether um, we get special treatment if, if it's under your name. And I just found that a very gauche, off-putting kind of a thing for a bloke to say when we're only into our sort of a second, third date really. And I said, you're missing, misunderstanding who I am. I don't like to be recognised. I think that's all very wanky. You know, it's, it's not me. I'm not interested in that shallow sort of fawning of a waiter. Um, And he did this in an email, a a backflip to explain what he meant. No, 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 you misunderstood me. I didn't mean that. Um, And I actually lost the email. I haven't been able to refine what he said at the time, but he managed to convince me in it that his intentions were not what I thought they were. He turned out to be an absolute con man, didn't he? Pretty much, yeah maybe two or three things that in retrospect really were the warning signs? That there were, I, I, he, he, it was the level of um, telling rather than showing. So, I mean, every writer knows to show, not tell, to, mm. to not to say someone is handsome but to illustrate how someone is handsome. Same in real life, you know, if you if you walk, walk, talk sort of thing. And he wasn't showing me things. I did meet his children, but I didn't see the house that he said he had on the harbour. I didn't see the farm that he claimed was his. Um, uh, I didn't meet, I met one of his friends, but that was it. I, there were endless cancellations. I think it was, it was, the, it was, it was the lack of the, the things that I wasn't seeing in his life that he said were were part of his life and the cancellations that were the warning signs. And ultimately, after I dumped him 14 months into the relationship and I started to dig around, I found that he'd been with another woman the whole time, that he was bankrupt and had a a forgery-related criminal record. Um, And he didn't live in the house on the harbour. He had no money. Not that that was what I was interested in, but it wasn't the money that I was interested in, Mm. but... He had built this complete construct of a person to hide what a man who was fundamentally of no fixed address, a hobo, really. And what a shame he chose you, an investigative reporter. I don't know why he chose me. That, that was, I think he was. I think he takes risks. It's. It's. I think that. Um, I mean, in my research for my book, Fake, I, I looked into personality disorders because it seems to me that. You obviously can't say that he has X personality disorders, but I can say that his behaviour very much aligns with a number of different personality disorders that the American Psychiatric Association um, designates in the DSM-5. And one of the characteristics for both antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder is risk-taking. So Mm. I think he gets... A huge kick out of this sort of risk taking where he's on the edge the whole time um 
perhaps he thought he could get away with it. I don't know. It also occurs to me that maybe there's a bit of a thrill for him in having been the subject of a book, although mm. I think it's my story more than it's his. Um, don't suppose you send him a copy. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, um, we'll turn now to Susan. Susan, as you and Wayne were becoming involved, you were also on a quest to discover more about your own family history. Tell me a bit about this. Why were you interested in your family history? What did you need to know? I really needed to know where I came from. Um, so I had been adopted and my parents, so I'd been left in the hospital. My parents had gone to the doctor's office and literally picked me up because in those days there was a thing called um, private adoption. So it wasn't done through any kind of um, department or, or official, official channels. So the doctor knew that they could not have children. They um, went to the doctor's office and picked me up. So I always knew I was adopted. They told me from a very young age, but there were no records. There was no information whatsoever. And when my father was dying, my the man that, that I call my father, and my little boy was quite young, he said to me, you need to go and find out where you come from, who you are, what your background is, what your medical background is. And medical background was really important to me at that point because my father was dying and my boy was, was four years old. My son was four years old. Um, I'd always felt there was a part of me missing. Uh, I've said before, it was like somebody turned the television on and there I was. But what was behind me? Um, yeah. You know, where did I come from? I didn't just arrive in 1961. There's a whole history behind me. And I really needed to know that to fill that space within me. Um, so when the New South Wales government changed the legislation, so people who were adopted could actually get their original birth certificate, not the birth certificate that had been created. So mm. it actually had my natural mother or my biological mother's name and where she came from. That was 1993 and that was the beginning of my journey, um, which took nearly 20 years till I really discovered the truth. It was, it was uh, a long journey um, and sometimes very frustrating, but I did eventually find the truth. There's a whole story about your mother in itself, which we might leave for today. What I'd like to talk about is when you found your natural father. Tell me a bit about him. <laughs> well, um, in the letter that my natural mother sent to me originally, she said that they'd run from Melbourne in 1959 and he was a former police officer and the police were chasing them because of something he had done. And... They left me in Newcastle and kept travelling around Australia for another two and a half years. And apparently what she said was that while they were on that journey, he was raising money for the IRA in Australia. And I had heard that um, supporters of the IRA were in America 
and raising money there, but I'd never heard that in Australia there were IRA fundraisers. So eventually I tracked him down in 2013 and Wayne and I went across to Perth to meet him. And it was quite difficult because he was living under an alias. He was speaking with an Irish accent. So he was completely um, he was completely in hiding but in full sight. And I met him in a pub where he had assured me that it would be quiet and we'd be able to speak and talk and I, I could um, find out his background. But the pub, it was an Irish pub and it was teeming with people and the music was pounding the walls and trying to speak to him was very difficult. Um, but pretty much he he assured me that he was in Newcastle in 1961 with my mother and he did believe that he was my father. Uh, but he was always taking this middle line. So um, never quite saying yes, but also not saying no. So I knew, though, I knew that he was my father. So I was happy to get out of that pub. Let's just say that. <laughs> yes, and I must say the stories you talk about, to tell about your biological um, mother are also slightly disconcerting. Of all the information you found following your search for your birth story, was there any good news that came out of it? Was there anything good that came out of this? this oh, look, I think the whole, the whole thing was good. I needed the story. I desperately needed to know the information. And whether it was whether it was information that wasn't palatable or whether it was information that was distasteful, um, in the end, that didn't really matter. What really mattered in the end is that I got the story, I got the information, I finally knew my background, and that was more important to me than, than anything else. So that in itself is the good news. It meant that I could move on. And I was no longer kind of hamstrung by this lack of knowledge. Once I had the knowledge, then I could move on. And you found other family members as well, not just parents. Tell me who else you discovered. Oh, so strange. <laughs> I feel strange talking to you, Suzanne, because you're a Suzanne. Um, <laughs> many Suzannes, many Susans in this story and one Stephanie. <laughs> exactly. Um, so what I discovered, um, my mother gave me a name for my father, which was not the correct name, but I went chasing that name and ended up in a small country town in Victoria and everyone believed that I was um, this man and my mother's child because everybody knew in the town that my mother had fallen pregnant to this man. But it had happened two years before I was born. So something wasn't quite, didn't quite add up. And sitting there one night, very late at night, with this elderly woman um, who was telling me all about my mother and my father, uh, she said, oh, and I've got your letter. And I said, what letter? She said, oh, you sent me a letter two years ago saying um, your name is Susan, um, this was your mother. And I just couldn't understand. She brought the letter out. There was another Susan. So my mother had had uh, another child two years before me, another little girl who she'd also adopted out and who was also called Susan. So the 
that was probably the most surreal moment in the whole story. There were two Susans. We were half-sisters because her father was the first man, not my father. Um, so, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was so very strange. What fascinated me was who called you Susan? Did your adoptive parents okay. call you Susan or did, yeah. or did your birth mother call you Susan? Okay, so what we eventually, so I went down to meet my sister Susan um, and we looked extraordinarily alike, which was amazing for me because it was wonderful to see someone, you know, you could, people could tell we were sisters, even the waitress at the coffee shop said, um, oh, so nice for sisters to be having coffee, mm -hmm. you know. Anyway, it turned out that our mother had called her Susan in the hospital I had been unnamed in the hospital and my adopted or the people who adopted me, those, my mum and dad, they called me Susan. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. Yes. So, let's, let's just sit for the audience out there. Let's just sit and think about the coincidence of that while we turn to Stephanie. Yes. <laughs> excuse. My voice is a little bit croaky. No, no virus, just um, I had a procedure and it's um, – left me with a hoarse voice so um onwards and upwards Stephanie let's return to you you were with Joe for 15 months tell me a couple of the good things during that relationship oh can you remember them <laughs> uh, the, the the physical intimacy there you go you know what we are all human beings who crave physical intimacy and it had been a long time for me and I would be dishonest if I didn't say that that was very special through the time that I was with him. Um, and the boost to my ego would probably be the other. I mean, I'm talking in very general terms. There were certain moments yes. that were very special, like we had a, a wonderful holiday in Tasmania. Um, but in terms of more thematic kind of things, it was the, the intimacy and I guess the boost to my ego that someone was interested in me, someone that on the face of it seemed to be this very successful, uh, thriving, ambitious man. Um, I, I, I think those are the two things, yes. You're an investigative reporter. You're a very well-known, much-lauded journalist. You had a few warning signs about this man. Why didn't you get your mates to do some checks on him? Or do some checks yourself? I did do some initial Google checks. Yeah. So I Doesn't established... <laughs> yeah, I think that's <laughs> fairly normal. It's funny, um, a few men I've spoken to about the story in my book um, go, really, you did that? So I wonder if it's not a first to man's thing. I don't, I don't know. Um, but um, I did some... In, uh, I did some very early checks. Um, he had told me, Joe had told me that he was the grandson of a very well-known Australian businessman who started a very major Australian company. And I Googled that man. Uh, he just said now he was dead, uh, had been dead for some years, but I Googled him and the physical resemblance was just unquestionable. There was no, they had, they had different surnames because um, Joe's mother was the, daughter of the grandfather I'm not making that if you get what I mean so there was a they were not the same surnames but the physical resemblance was undeniable so that was definitely true um and I saw his driver's license one day where the harbour side address was very clearly written typed out on a 
official New South Wales driver's licence. Um, I later discovered in my research for the book that th th there's a whole science, a whole psychological science called cognitive, the cognitive science. And one of the, um, uh, what do you call it? One of the, one of the things in cognitive science, one of the, 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 uh, the theories, ideas is that we, um, is an idea called anchoring, whereby we place emphasis on certain pieces of information at the expense of other pieces of inf information. Mm. So I anchored my belief in Joe's honesty based on the fact that, well, yes, he told me the truth about his grandfather and, yes, I'd sent his driver's licence, therefore he lived at the house that he said he lived at. Um, and that's a very common thing. We, we, we human beings will place emphasis on certain bits of information that they choose and ignore other bits. I mean, you know, it's the same as the, the woman that, or the man that goes to a tanning bed salon and their doctor says, don't do that, you're going to get a melanoma. and they choose to ignore that or the or the woman who's told uh, whose daughter says mum your, your boyfriend is abusing me and the mother decides to not believe that bit of information and believe other bits of information about her boyfriend at the expense of the information that's really very important so cognitive science tells us an awful lot about why we choose not to study certain bits of information but additionally um I mean it's I didn't want to look I had I sat near Kate McClymer and Anne Davies at the Sydney Morning Herald and they're friends of mine and they're both major investigative journalists. Um, everyone knows Kate. Anne's are now doing wonderful work at The Guardian. And I was sharing with Anne one day my anxieties about why is Joe cancelling? What's what's this, why is he doing this? Is he can I believe him? Can I trust him? And Anne said, Let's do some searches on him. And I knew what sort of searches she was talking about them. I've done them myself for stories. You know, we're talking about title deed searches to see whether he does in fact own that house that he says he does. Um, bankruptcy searches, uh, um, company searches. There are public searches on the public record that we can do that I, I, I've done in the past myself. And I said, no, 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 this is not a story. This is, this is, this is, this is a love affair. This is not a story. I don't want to snoop. And, and that was a part. I didn't want to snoop. I mean, I'd done my early small amount of Google snooping, but I didn't want to dig further, I think mainly because I didn't want to know the bad news. I didn't want to know. And I, and I must say, and I think um, you're quite hard on yourself in this book in terms of um, um, what you might have known or might not have known, but I think and you're a journalist. I'm a lawyer. I'm on a tribunal. My job is to work out whether I believe people or not. But in my personal life, that's not my job. My job's to get to know people. My job's and and my first um, thought is how interesting a person might be, not whether they're believable or not. So no, I think it's very think interesting. We also, I think, I think if you're an honest person, as my, as, as I assume the three of us are, um, you can't even begin to imagine that someone would be telling the sorts of lies that Joe ended up telling. Mm. I mean, it still is gobsmacking to me that someone's mm. brain can work like his does and tell the lies that he does. It's, it's beyond my, my capacity to believe. But I've had such, I initially wrote about this for Good Weekend in 2017 and then it, that story became, was turned and became my book. And um, in, both in response to the original Good Weekend article and also in response, I've had just hundreds of emails from mm. women, a few men, mostly women, um, telling me similar stories 
incredibly similar stories to the point that I'd say maybe four or five of the women that have contacted me have said, was your, my God, that's my story. I'm sure it's the same guy. And then they'll tell me the name of the guy and describe him physically, and it's not. So these men wow. almost work for some sort of incredible playbook. They've got a manual of, of how to do this. Um, but so many women are saying that, you know, that they've come to me and said, oh, I'm smart, I'm intelligent, I do this in my professional life. How could I have been so stupid in my personal life? You know, some of them said, you know, I've got, I've got multiple degrees and yet I, this happened to me. How did this happen to me? And your personal, I think your heart leads you in very different directions from your brain. Um, <laughs> They're, they're different parts of your body and your thinking, really. I think that's right. And just before I turn to Susan, just for the audience out there, what's fascinating about Stephanie's book, Fake, is uh, not only is it her memoir, but it's also a study into the personalities of men like Joe Wood, these narcissists, these fantasists. And so very well, Stephanie, I mean, you're, you're a master at this, at this work, at this writing, very well you interlaced your own memoir with these um, scientific findings and research, um, which I think will, um, will make it of great interest to such a broad audience. Now, Susan, to you. In 2015, you and Wayne sold everything up and you moved to Spain. Um, why did you do that? Why did we do that? Yeah. <laughs> well, why wouldn't you do that? Oh, exactly. <laughs> um, we both, we'd both been working very hard for a very long time. He was an underground gold miner um, with incredible responsibility for a big team of men and I was a teacher and he was almost like he had a premonition but he would say to me, before we get too old, we need to go away for a year in a, in a foreign culture, challenge ourselves, live together. And his expression was live before we die. We need to get out there and, and do something beyond our comfort zones. And, yeah, we sold the house, we sold my car, we sold our furniture, we sold everything to fund that trip. Um, and we both wanted to do it very badly. We wanted to do something different. But then, and this is the heartbreaking part, he died. Um, he was, you went to Spain to live before you die and then suddenly in Spain he died. What an awful, awful shock. How did you cope yeah. with that? I, and I'm um, asking you, how did you cope in Spain? How did you cope actually with okay. dealing with having him die in Spain in a foreign country? So... We'd gone away to Portugal for his birthday. Portugal, and Portugal. Yeah, no, it's okay. Very similar countries. And um, we were travelling around Portugal and it was the, I think it was about a week after his 60th birthday and we were, we were in Lisbon. And, um, you know, we had a hire car. I couldn't speak the language very well and neither could he because it was Portugal, not Spain, and there are yeah. subtle differences. So he died that morning in a flat that we were hiring, renting, and what I really remember is I was sitting beside him holding his hand 
and he'd passed away. And all of a sudden the, the flat was filled with people in, in uniform and official people and I couldn't understand what anyone was saying really. Um, and I think my first, the first person that helped me because it was other people, I, it was other people that got me through and the first person I remember was the Australian consulate lady. She walked in and she talked to all the police and they'd taken a statement and they were unwilling to shift Wayne's body. So I was sitting there for hours, like all day beside him. Um, and it was she who convinced them that that we could get the processes moving. So it was her, it was the lady at the funeral home who she introduced me to, who took care of all that. It was my son flying over from Australia who managed to drive us back through Portugal, back to Granada, um, with Wayne's ashes sitting on the back seat. Um, it was my family when I returned home. Um, my brother let me live at his house. So it was other people that really got me through that. Um, and I often think, thank God, that I had those people because coming home without anything, without a job, without a house, without furniture, uh, without a fridge, without anything, um, I was really close to being homeless except that I had those people around me. Um, so it's a very, those people around us, they're the, they're, they're the point of difference, I think. It's, um, it's, it's a heartbreaking story. And to make matters more difficult, after he died, you found out a very difficult secret about him. It's not something I'm going to ask you about um, because that's obviously um, for the readers to discover themselves. But my question is this, um, bearing in mind that he died, you'd found out more about him than you knew. How did that make you feel about him in the midst of this grief? Did it change your feelings towards him? I was really interested in what Stephanie talked about in terms of um, a point. or um, So I talk about cognizant, cognizant, cognizant dissonance and... You know, I had a I had an image in my head and I had real feelings and real emotions. I had a wedding ring. I had experience. I had love. I had um, I had actions that told me one story about my husband. And then I discovered this other story about my husband, which was the most shocking thing I think you could ever learn. So it I I I didn't learn that until two years after he died. And I was coming out of my grief at that point and things were kind of returning to normal and that was the point I decided I needed to discover what the secret was because I knew something had happened. Um, so for six months, I, once I discovered it, I, you know, I held these two images in my head of the man that I loved and still love and I went to New Guinea to find out what really happened and now how I feel is... I love him more. I feel that he held this incredibly terrible secret to himself and it made him so much more vulnerable than I ever understood. I, you know, I thought he was such a strong man and an unafraid man and all the time he was living with this secret that he was so afraid to tell me. Um, so I actually love him more and I wish he was here so that I could tell him that.
Oh, Susan, I wish you were here too. <laughs> he sounds like a terrific man. And um, I so love the story. And thank you. Thank you for letting me speak to you about such a difficult and intimate matter. Stephanie, I'm going thank to you. end. Thank you. I'm going to end um, with a question for you. We've spoken about Susan's grief at becoming a widow, but how about the grief of having lost the relationship uh, with a man who was someone completely different to what you hoped? What's that grief like? Um, it's 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 cognitive dissonance is a word that I also an expression that I've also used a lot. Um, I think what I needed to come to terms with, and that has taken, that took a long time, that the man I thought was there was never was there. It was a complete construct. Mm -hmm. And he really never had feelings for me because he doesn't, my belief is that he doesn't really know, it's not within his psychological toolkit to know how to love people. Um, I served a purpose for him. Um, he didn't ever take money from me, never asked for money from me, but I served a purpose for him in, um, I guess, applauding his, these, these magnificent things he told me about what he was doing in his life and this property development and how these lawyers said he was very clever at this. And he never did it in a boastful way because I would have hated that. It was always quite sheepish and shy and, and um, self-deprecating. Um, or so I thought at the time I can look back now and see it was it wasn't but um at the time I thought he was always very self-deprecating um and so I was the audience for his grand feats of of business acumen and um it's been hard to it was very I mean I'm, I'm completely over it now but um it was very hard to come to terms with the fact that he didn't give a shit about me he never did I was I was nothing to him um and so that grief is quite difficult you know the uh, what I thought was a special relationship. Um, but I, I like, I feel now, I mean, I feel stronger than I've ever felt. Mm. Um, he's actually made me. He didn't break me, he made me. Um, I've done things that I never thought were possible. Um, I didn't, I mean, as I weave, I talk a lot about the sea and the ocean and water through fake as a place that I go to for re recovery and nourishment. And um, I finished the book with about to launch into my first ocean swim and I've now done my second ocean swim a, a month or so back at Bondi. Um, I rafted down the Franklin River for eight days um, earlier this year as well, something I'd always wanted to do and never thought I'd have the courage to do. And I'm now much, much more fearless in, in not so much in love, <laughs> I have to say, but I'm fearless in other things and I, I just... There's no time to be wasted um, and I, doing the and things that I want to do. And your book sings with that. You know what? We're out of time. There was so much more that I had to ask you and so much more we could discuss. I think we should do another one of these face-to-face -face when um, when everybody is yes. back and out and <laughs> at festivals and ocean swimming. Malabar, Malabar Ocean Swim, Stephanie, <laughs> is terrific. <laughs> I'd highly recommend it. So, um, can I recommend to you our audience, Fake by Susan, like Stephanie Wood and The Love That Remains by Susan Francis, both terrific books that I think you'll very much enjoy during these times of much reading and much staying at home. 
please go to the website for Newcastle Writers Festival where you'll find a link to McLean, the festival's bookseller, and also a link to enable you to donate to the festival to keep it going into the future. Thank you very, very much for your time, Susan, and to Stephanie, and thank you, Alex, audience. Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. Susan. Bye.